but God is good, amen? I do, in the interest of full disclosure, want to share with you the challenges of preaching this sermon this morning. Uh, I, uh, we've been studying fasting and prayer, and I, I want to speak to you this morning about um, how God intervenes our life to free us from um, bad emotional habits and feelings about ourselves, as Cindy prayed about, condemnation could be one, uh, could be other ways. But in the, it is such a challenging topic, and I don't want to minimize things like... Uh, the, the, the way depression works in, our, in people's lives. I, I don't want to come across as glib or like, oh, you've got these five steps and God will free you from every depression or from every emotional angst that you might have. Um, so please um, don't hear me say that. If, I, if, you, if at some point you think I'm smoothing over some very big challenges, please, please don't, don't hear that. Um, but somewhere between it's too big a problem for God to touch and um, everything is just rosy and sunshine, the gospel has to get into our lives and be able to change us at some point, does it not? Don't we believe in the power of God to, to move in our lives at certain levels beyond what people will say God can do, doesn't, don't you think he loves us that much? So what I'm trying to say is I, I, I can't give you five steps to emotional freedom. I'm going to give you a path that, again, I think will put you on a position where God can touch you and deal with your life. But at the same time, I don't want you to go away in any way hopeless or in, in a way saying God has to kind of thing. Are you with me? Uh, you, you are made up of spirit, soul, and body. And we believe in the soul area of your life. You've got your mind, your will, and your emotions. And God has come to redeem the totality of you. Now, um, I also want to recognize that saints throughout the ages have struggled with dark nights of the soul. They've struggled through issues. I, I mean, I, I, I could name any number of great Christian saints from Martin Luther to Mother Teresa who have struggled with really dark times. And so I don't think we are any different, but at the same time, I want to hold out the truth of hope in our lives to say that God, God is able. God can do incredible, miraculous things. So I hope that's the the tenor of which you hear me speak today. Um, just to give you a, a theological positioning a little bit on this, and this may be it's kind of a side freebie, but it's really important. Um, I, I, I came from a, a priest, a, a Baptist background, a very Protestant, Baptist, biblically-based background. And I, I've joked over the years that, um, you know, we used to pray for people to be healed. Um, but there were a couple of requirements uh, in this praying for people to be healed. One, they couldn't be present when we prayed for them. You know, they were always on a list. It was always a prayer meeting, like a list of people who were sick. They couldn't be there. And then they couldn't get healed. So, uh, but we prayed for them nonetheless. It's, that was my childlike positioning. In other words, we, we, we gave a, an acknowledgement that prayer mattered, but we really didn't seem to believe it. We didn't seem to walk it out. And then later in life, I became um, more of a spirit-filled continuationist, charismatic, whatever you want to call me, um, within reason, uh, whatever you want to call me. And then I walked into this world where we went from God doesn't really move. Um, all of the things that God promised as far as health, healing, things like that, that's for heaven, not for earth. To um, a people who believe that everything that God promised is here now. All healing, all health, 
all wealth is for us now. And we just, the problem is we can't reach out and claim it. We can't reach out and grab it. We can't reach out and take it. And as I've gotten older, uh, I've realized I'm somewhere in between. I'm somewhere between the, no, God's, God does move. God's kingdom has come. His will is being done in earth as it's being done in heaven. It's being done now, right? Jesus came to inaugurate the kingdom of God. So there are those who are, are, are believe nothing about the kingdom is now. It's all for the future. And those who believe all of the kingdom is now. And these, these people have what's called an underrealized eschatology. That's a term I'm going to learn later, which means they don't, they don't believe that we're in the end times. They believe the end times is the end times and it'll come at the end of time. But God has done stuff now that we have available. These people have an overrealized eschatology. They believe all that what's promised is going to be done now. We believe somewhere in between, we're in the already, but not yet. There's an already aspect of what God has done in our lives, but there's also an expectation that God's going to do more. I mean, not all sickness has been eliminated. Not all death has been eliminated. But there is healing now. There is prayer for healing now. And there's this dynamic that we're in this tension between the times of the already of the coming of Christ and the release and the power of the Spirit and the kingdom of God present in our world and at the same time to realize it's not all here yet. So while we're in this tension, we struggle with things like I'm going to talk about today. How does God move to set us free emotionally? How, how do we walk out a measure of the freedom that we have? And I want to say, for some of you today, maybe this will be a day of freedom. For some of you today, this may be a step toward freedom. Uh, but whatever it is, I want to encourage you that you don't have to stay where you are. That you are not locked into this hopelessness feeling until you die or until Jesus comes back. And that the best that you can hope for is just to put one foot in front of the other and survive till tomorrow every day for the rest of your life. There's more. There's more than that. There may not be everything yet, but there's more. By the way, most people I know live a little toward this left side. You know, not, there's a ton of people who've fallen into this right ditch. I mean, there's lots out there who have fallen into that, but most of the people I deal with on a daily basis are the ones who could see a little more of the movement of God in their lives. That's the precursor. I want to look to you today because, you know, Isaiah said this, is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice untie the cords of the yoke and to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. And for many people, emotional bondage is a yoke. Emotional habits are a yoke that need to be broken in our lives. So if you're here today and you're happy and you're peaceful and you're doing great, praise God. Just praise him. Pray for the person sitting next to you because probably one of the two of you is struggling. Today. That's the level of emotional hurt and baggage that we have so many times in, our, in the world around us. First Kings 18 and 19, we see the great prophet Elijah. And I'm just going to summarize. I was going to read all these scripture passages, but I think it'll take too long. But I want to encourage you to read them. I'll summarize the story, and I'll get to the points of, of where I want us to be. But you'll, for those of you who've been in church very long, you'll remember the story. And those of you who've never been to church, it's a great story. Um, Elijah has prophesied. He's prophesying primarily to the nation of Israel, which is the ten tribes on the north. Little history for those of you, you're like, I didn't come, I, you know, I didn't know I was going to church to get history and eschatology and all of that in the same sermon. Well, congrats, you're here. Um, <clears throat> there was a time the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes were all one. 
they split into two kingdoms. The northern tribes, ten of them, become the nation of Israel. Southern two, Judah, two tribes. David's heirs rule in the southern tribe of Judah. A series of really bad, bad, bad kings rule in the north, with probably, arguably, the worst being Ahab. We're in the time of Ahab and Jezebel. And listen, when you get a demonic spirit named after you, uh, like Jezebel did, you got to figure she's not very good, uh, right? She's not. If you get your own spirit, you got the spirit of Jezebel. So, um, it, you know, it's not, it's not a good thing. So Ahab and Jezebel are king and queen of the north at this time. Uh, Elijah's prophesying and has prophesied it's not going to rain. It hasn't rained for three and a half years. Elijah sends word to, through a friend to go get Ahab because he's, he's going he, to prophesy to him about really the coming rain. So the prophet who goes to tell Ahab is like, I don't want to go say Ahab. You, you kill me just using your name. And Elijah said, no, go do it. And then Ahab comes to meet Elijah and when he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Now, this is an ironic line to me because Ahab sees, he honestly sees Elijah as the problem. He doesn't see himself as the problem. He doesn't see Jezebel. He doesn't see their wickedness. He doesn't see the fact that they've given over the people of God to the culture of their day as the problem. He sees a prophet of God as the problem. I don't think he's just being, just throwing out words. So he sees Elijah because Elijah did prophesy and say, God told me it's not going to rain. And Elijah, uh, Ahab sees Elijah as the one who instigated it when it really has come from God. Elijah corrects him and says, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's house family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the veils. Um, we're going to get into this later. You're going to see um, the prophets of Baal and Asherah come together. Um, Baal and Asherah were the Canaanite gods, so to speak, gods in small g. They were the gods of the land, and they were really fertility gods um, in their minds. They had to do with the crops, and the, it was a farming industry kind of thing. And so they thought if that sexuality was closely related to fertility, and fertility was closely related to the crops, and so the nation of Israel had had believed in God still, but at the same time adopted the gods of the land, thinking, well, what harm could it do, really? You know, really, what, how bad could it be? I mean, maybe we'll appease the gods of the land and our crops will be better, but we'll still worship God. So they were duplicitous in their worship. They had accepted both. By the way, I, if I stop and preach on every point here, you know we're going to be here all day, but I think you can see the danger of this idea that we can worship both God and the culture in which we live, hoping that our prosperity will result in hanging on to the culture and the gods around us, so to speak, the things that we worship. And we have tons of them. We don't call them Baal and Asherah, but we, we, can, call them, um, we can call them politics. We can call them stock markets. We can call them monetary, we can call it entertainment, we can call it whatever we want, but it's sometimes our worship is divided. And we need to really be aware of that, and God won't tolerate it. Elijah goes on, now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Now, here's the point. Not only have they gotten into the culture, but they are at the highest points of power. They are eating at the table of the queen. They are, they are all around us. And just because they're in the palace doesn't sanitize them. Just because they're at the highest points of influence doesn't mean that they're of God. And again, I'm, 
I am preaching every point, right? <laughs> You're like, he says he's not going to preach everyone, but it sounds like he is. Uh, maybe I should, because if we're not careful, we think that prosperity and power equate to godliness, and they don't. They don't. So Ahab, to his credit, sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said to the people, here's, here's the line everyone should always underline and, and make it almost a daily prayer. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. In other words, look, if you want to worship culture, go worship it. Just don't pretend to worship God too. But if you're going to follow God, follow him. Look, make a choice. Don't waver. Follow one or the other. But the people said nothing. Maybe it's my uh, long week of weakness, but, you know, I'm pretty ticked off that, that the church makes it sound like things of the world are of God. And that we readily feed at this table of godlessness and try to rearrange the forks and make it sound like it, it's acceptable. And at some point, we have to say, how long are we going to waver between two opinions? If you want to serve money, if you want to go after stuff, go ahead. God says, go ahead, do it. But if not, serve God. Go after him and the purity and holiness and life that he has for you. Elijah, as you know, proposes this duel, so to speak. He says, listen, why don't you, why don't we, you, we sacrifice something and you call down fire from heaven, Baal and Asherah, priests and priestesses, you call down fire from heaven, and then I'll call down fire from heaven, and we'll see whose God is really God. So it, it happens. They, they start praying early in the morning. They pray all day, the gods of the priests and priestesses of Baal and Asherah. They pray all day, and nothing happens. They start cutting themselves. They start screaming. They're, they're very, very, very passionate Again, a point of interest here, passion does not translate to godliness. Uh, it's not the same thing. Um, just because someone's screaming really loud doesn't mean they're of the Lord. Um, and they may be claiming some things, but that doesn't mean it is. And Elijah, <laughs> this old prophet, he starts making fun of them. Um, he, he gets to the point where they've been going all morning past midday, and they're, they're going on and on and on. And, he basically says to him, hey, maybe you should yell a little louder. Maybe your God can't hear you. Maybe he's gone traveling. Literally, he says, hey, maybe he's in the bathroom. Um, he's, he's saying, maybe he's out in the bathroom or something. I mean, he's mocking him. He's full scale going after him. They get nowhere. So then Elijah says to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Again, so many key factors in this story that are, are worth noting. He, 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 the altar hasn't even been being used. Uh, it's in ruins. That's how much they've left, left the Lord. Then Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying... Your name shall be Israel. Uh, by the way, this is, he's making a political statement here, I think. Uh, remember the nations divided ten tribes to the north, two to the south. But he takes twelve to say this was never God's intent for this people to be divided. They should have been, you should have been one. It was sin and disobedience that led you here. But God, his promises were to his people, the twelve tribes. And your name shall be Israel. He didn't mean just the ten, but all, all twelve. 
With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it long enough to hold two sayas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water, pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. You get the point? He's, he's not, he's going to make it impossible for this fire to light on its own. There's no, he doesn't have one of those little sticky things that lights up that he's going to walk up and kind of backhanded light the fire. Um, he's, he's making it clear, this is going to have to be of God. It's drenched, it's soaked, it's... At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. I don't know how Isaiah prayed. It doesn't say, hey, Isaiah stepped forward and said, Lord God of Israel. He, he could have done it like that. But I... In my heart, I've always kind of thought he did it opposite of them. I don't know if that's the case or not, but in my imagination, I've always thought he stepped forward and rather than just screaming it with the, with the, with the sh intensity of prayer but not screaming, has prayed. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me. Not so that I'm exalted, but so that these people will know that you, O oh Lord, are God. And that you are turning their hearts back again. The intent to turn the people's hearts again. Then the fire fell. Burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. By the way, this is not just like fire, fire. This is like fire. I mean, this, this isn't a time. The, the fire is so intense that it burns up not only the sacrifice and the wood. I mean, it burns up the stones. It burns up the water. They, they did not have the ability to make fire at this level in this period of history, as far as we know. This could not have been generated by Elijah or any human hand. In it. It's like a small nuclear explosion that happens so clearly God. What did the people do? They fell prostrate, cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, why did they cry this? Because they'd seen God do something. They saw him move. They saw the miraculous hand of God move. Which, it has, it's problematic in and of itself to me. If the only time we're going to declare God is God is when we see fire fall, then where is faith in this whole equation? That's seeing. But God did want to do something to stir their hearts back to him. And through Elijah and these prayers, he did. So, God, God moves. Elijah, by the way, he goes, on a, uh, he goes on a cleansing rampage. He says, seize the prophets. Kill them all. Which in our, we're like, oh, wow, that sounds really brutal. But I believe what Elijah's saying, look, when sin happens, you have to rid it from your presence. You can't live at peace with it. You can't make peace with it. You've got to get rid of it. You've got to deal with sin harshly. Now, please don't take this as a, a mandate, you know, like a Christian jihadist kind of thing. I'm not saying, but I'm talking about individually. You need to deal with sin in your own life in a way that you don't live at peace with it. Um, by the way, what the nation of Israel teaches us over and over again is if you try and live at peace with sin, what happens is sin doesn't live at peace with you. It becomes your ruler. It takes over you. 
And I, I, I've seen this time and time and time and time again in people's lives where they start off living at peace with the sin that then becomes the very ruler of their life that dictates how they spend their free time, that dictates how they interact with people, that dictates um, their relationships with their children, their spouses, their friends. I've said it over and over again. I'll say it again because it's really good. People don't wake up in the morning and say most of the time, I'm going to ruin my life today. Today I'm going to do something so bad it's going to ruin my life. They got to that point over a period of time trying to live at peace with something they should have never lived at peace with to where it becomes the giant in the house that they can't overcome. Elijah does this. And you know what's incredible to me is Ahab is still there. Ahab sticks around through this whole process. And Elijah says to Ahab, at this point, go eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So remember, it hasn't rained for how long? Three plus years. And now, Elijah is saying, after this, hey, Elijah, go eat and drink. It's going it's to rain. Well, there's no rain. There's no clouds. There's no nothing. But he's telling him to go Ahab went off to eat and drink. So Ahab at some point believes that this guy Elijah can do what he says he's going to do. He, be he believes enough to go eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down onto the ground, and put his face between his knees and started praying. And then he says to his servant, hey, go look and see if you see any clouds. The servant goes, Elijah doesn't get up. We talked about this at prayer not long ago. I don't know if you've been on the ground with your head between your, your knees bent down. The older I get, I, at first I thought this is just a position of faith for Elijah. But I'm like, I don't think he wanted to get up. That's a hard position to get out of. Go look for the clouds, then come back, get in that position again. I don't know. if it was. Just, so he sent a servant to look. Servant, come, I don't see anything. Praise again. Servant. Boom, boom, boom. It happened seven times. On the seventh time, it says, the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. It's an um, this is an unbelievable story to me. This is an unbelievable aspect of faith that he sees one cloud after three and a half years, I'm sure they've seen a cloud before. I, I know it didn't rain, but surely a cloud has kind of passed by in three and a half years. But he sees this cloud. He says, that's it. You know, sometimes, again, I'm sorry I'm preaching every point. I haven't even got to the sermon yet. You're like, what? I'm going to get there and I'll move through the points quickly. But here... Here's the idea. Sometimes you, don't, sometimes you don't have to see the end. You need to see the beginning of God moving in small ways for faith to rise up within you for victory to come. Sometimes it's just a little thing that can help you move forward in faith. Ahab goes. It says, meanwhile... The sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain came on. And Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah. And tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. The old guy who couldn't get up outruns a horse. Um, he, you know, Ahab is, is riding. Ahab. Um, Elijah tucks his cloak in and, and runs a 10K faster than a horse. It's like six miles, I think, is what I read the other day. So he goes for six miles faster than a horse. Look at the three major miracles that have happened in this story so far. So far, he's called down fire from heaven. Not bad. 
not a, not a bad start to the day. He prayed for rain after three and a half years, and it's raining. Then he outruns a horse. Here's where the story turns. And this is what I wanted to get to, so I'm sorry. You're just going to have to hang with me. Word gets back to Jezebel. And she's, you know, Ahab, he goes back. You're not going to believe what happened. Called down fire, killed all the prophets, uh, called down rain, outran me here. And she says and say, well, praise God. That's, that's awesome. That's incredible. Let's change our hearts and our lives right now. No, she says, hey, if I don't make him like the prophets, if I don't kill him by this time tomorrow, be it unto me. I'm going to kill him. And this causes Elijah to go into, it just, he, he implodes. He runs away to hide. Here, here's some basic truths. I, I want you to just kind of see. We're going to follow the story a little bit more, but many times attack and potential defeat often follows victory. It, this is not unusual, this defeat following a great victory. There's something that makes us um, vulnerable after a great victory, especially spiritually, something that happens to us. You would think, oh, we're on the mountain. This is going to be it. I'm going to take it. But I can tell you personally, my, um, my, my, the times I am most deflated or struggle the most spiritually are after a, a meeting where something incredible happens, where God moves. And I go home, and I'm just, oh, I'm spent. There's something, and, and so many times Kathy will pray for me. God, just give Bart grace. Uh, it's one of the reasons I usually take Monday off, um, just because I just need the time to regroup um, spiritually. But it, it shouldn't be a surprise. You would think you're up here and you should be in a great position, but look at the, look at the Bible stories. Noah preached against drunkenness, builds an ark, floods the place, survives, what does he do? First thing he gets off the ark, he gets drunk. Builds a vineyard. Next thing you know, he's drunk and naked, lying around. It doesn't go well. Abraham has this covenantal word from God, but yet Abraham goes and, tries and lies about his wife Sarah. Twice, at least. Moses has spiritual mountaintop experiences. Next thing you know, he's hitting a rock. He gets mad at the people. He's the most humble man on the face of the earth or who ever lived. He gets mad and hits a rock. Which David, humble, becomes king. Next thing you know, he's killing people and stealing wives. Peter cuts off the ear, stands up firm for the Lord. Next thing you know, he's denying Christ. You see this pattern over and over again of spirit. Kind of a spiritual high, something occurring, followed by a potential defeat. Elijah's not unique. God knows what's in our hearts. He sees what is in you. And past victories don't necessarily break bad habits. You know, a habit, a habit is... Kind of the, the original definition of the word habit has to do with an old piece of clothing that you wear over and over and over again. You know, you've heard like a nun's habit. It's that idea of the same clothing that you put on over and over and over and over again. That's what happens to us emotionally. We put on the same emotional garments over and over and over again if we're not careful. But... We think at times that the past may help us with the future, but instead God's presence is going to help us with what he wants to do. All right, so how is there a possible path to this emotional freedom? I've spent a lot of time summarizing this story. Elijah, he flees. 
he goes under a tree and he says, I want to die. You remember? He, he, he goes from the mountaintop to the death trap in, in like no time. And he sits under this tree and he says, God, I, I'm the only one. Nobody loves you like me. Look how they treat me. Just take me, just kill me. And an angel of the Lord comes, feeds him an angel food cake. I thought that was cute. Um, feeds him a cake, and he eats a cake, and then talks to him, then feeds him another cake and says, now travel. And there's this miraculous traveling that Elijah does, evidently, based on the angel food cake. He travels for 40 days. It doesn't say without eating and drinking, but that's the implication, that there's a fast that takes place here for 40 days. And many traditions have it that he ends up back at, he ends up at Mount Sinai, where the covenant was given. Um, we don't know that for sure. The location isn't mentioned. But he, after 40 days, he ends up there. And the word of the Lord comes to him and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? It's a question of evaluation. Like, where, what are you doing here? What are you looking for? Now, I would have said, hey, the angel, you told me to come here. You know, rather than saying, well, he, he wants, God wants to know, Elijah, what are you really doing here? What, I, I think it's a question of what's going on. And we need to evaluate honestly what's going on in our lives. Um, many people, many, live in a constant state of denial. Unfortunately, in my 30 years of pastoring, I, I, I've seen it really often that, for instance, with married couples, something is going on in the marriage relationship. To anybody with eyes to see, it's clear what's going on. But one of the parties is living in denial and seeing the spouse not through reality, but through, I think it's the way you're supposed to live in marriage, where you overlook offenses, but to the point where it's unreasonable. And then something happens where the glasses are taken away, and they see what's really going on, and then all hell breaks loose, which could have been taken care of years before. I'm not condemning. Please don't hear me. I'm just saying many times, even in our own lives, we don't truly evaluate what's going on in our hearts. We don't evaluate the struggles. We don't evaluate the way we're medicating ourselves with entertainment. We don't evaluate what we're allowing into our homes. We just, we ride with it until it breaks on the shore. And at that point, we're like, how the heck did I get here? What happened? Evaluate. Next, be honest about your feelings. So, Elijah says to God this, I've been very zealous for the Lord God. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. It's true what he's saying. And then he gets to the real point. I am the only one. And now they're trying to kill me too. Elijah at least is getting to the point of being honest. Now... He's honestly wrong in the sense of saying, I'm the only one, and God's going to make that clear to him. But this is the real point of everything. God, why, why are you treating me like this? 
Why are you letting this? I'm the one standing up for you. Why are you not treating me better? It's that uh, old, I don't know where it originated, but I've heard it sourced to many people over time who have said something to the effect of, you know, God, it's, it's no wonder you have so few friends by the way you treat the ones you do have kind of thing, that attitude of like, no wonder you have so few friends. Look at the way you're treating the ones who are friendly to you. That's where Elijah is. I, I'm the only one standing up for the covenant and doing what's right, and look where, look where it's gotten me. Then, he, you, know, you know the story. You still with me? I'm enjoying this. I, I'm sorry if, you're, if I've lost you, but come on back for a minute. Here's what happens. There's a, there's a wind that comes, you know, this loud rushing wind. God's voice is not in the wind. There's this earthquake. I may get in the order wrong, but it's, it's earth, wind, and fire for sure. Right, so and that's an old reference for some of you. It's the wind, it's earthquake. There's a fire, and all three of the big three, no voice of God. But then the voice of God speaks, still small voice, like a whisper. You know when someone whispers to you, they have something they want only you to hear, but they really want you to hear it. You know, my grandkids crack me up because they're loud as heck. They're Brookens, and all the Brookens are loud. But when they really want my attention, they'll come whisper something in my ear. When they want, and it's usually something stupid, but they don't want their brother or sister to hear, but they whisper something to me. And it's like that God is, the still small voice of God speaks to Elijah. We need to hear the voice of God. We need to hear God's word. The word of the Lord came to him. The word of the Lord is it's living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword. We need the word of the Lord. And it judges the thoughts and attitudes of what? It pierces to your emotional being. He receives the word of the Lord. Which is what we need, I think, to overcome emotional baggage and places in our lives. We need to hear the word of the Lord. And then... There's a plan that's given to him. Look and plan for positive actions. In other words, evaluate where you are, listen to the word of the Lord, then obey the word of the Lord. Take some positive steps. Look what he's told. Hey, Elijah, get up from here. Get out of here now that you've been here. Go anoint Hazael, king over Syria. Anoint Jehu as king over Israel. Commission your successor, Elijah. Here are three steps you need to do. And oh, by the way, you're not the only one, loser. I've got like 7,000 others who have not bowed their knee to Baal in this nation. You may feel alone, you may think you're alone, but you are not alone. And that's a key factor for all of us. You aren't alone. The enemy wants to isolate you. He wants, he wants you to think you're the only one. No one else is going through what I'm going through. That's just a bunch of hooey. There are tons of people going through what you're going through. You just need to find people to connect with. You need to find those who will battle with you on your behalf. Couples, do you think you're the only one who are struggling in your marriage? Do you really think you're the only ones? So we have a marriage mentoring ministry. We want people who have struggled, are struggling, will struggle to help you struggle through. And say, there's more. 
Parents, do you think your kids are the only ones who are like they are? Listen, I'm convinced there's no harder period of life than being parents of preschoolers. It's constant. It's never-ending. They never let up. They barely speak the English language. You know what I mean? Really. It's tough. It's hard to parent preschoolers. Your time is totally shot. You're physically exhausted. You never have any free time. You never get to go do anything fun anymore. And you think, oh, I'm the only one. No, you're not the only one. I'm not mocking. I'm just saying, find people, find climbing companions who can struggle with you, who you can go through life with. I mean, I could go down the list of, of issues and things that, and, but it's the enemy who tries to isolate you and keep you thinking, and then he can emotionally trouble your heart. He can put you in a prison of emotional bondage. And this is where I, I'm saying, break the emotional habits. Walk, walk by the power of God. Say, okay, you know what? I refuse to believe these lies anymore. I just, I'm just not going to believe them. I'm going to repent. I'm going to change direction. I'm going to, Lord, change my mind. I'm going to go with you. Now, you may be saying, Pastor, come on. That's just too simplistic. I know. Do it anyway. See what will happen. I mean, what's going to be worse? Being stuck in a cave in a desert hundreds of miles from people, thinking you're the only one, wishing you would die, or get out of the cave, go do what God says, and see what will happen. What's the worst that could happen to Elijah at this point? He could die. Well, that's what he wanted anyway. Right? But God's not quite done with him yet. It is kind of unique that Elijah's ministry has reached its zenith, so to speak. But I don't consider being caught up in a chariot and a whirlwind of fire and not dying and going straight to heaven all that bad. You know, God didn't give him his wish. He didn't die. Not only that, but He's going to come back on a mount years from now and see God in human flesh at the transfiguration. What does God have for you in the days ahead? I don't know. I can't answer all of that. But he doesn't want you sitting alone in a cave wishing you could die and in some emotional baggage. He came to set you free. And we need to tap into his freedom in our lives. Craig, if the team could come back up. I know I've spoken a long time. I actually thought I was going to go short, but this is what happens when you're medicated. Um, sometimes you just keep talking and love the sound of your own voice. Um, here, here's one of the key aspects I, I want you to see today. And here, here are the points. I'm going to skip that that. Here are the points, again, to help you get on a path where God can, can, can touch you and hopefully emotionally free you. But here's one of the points that I, I, I want to close with, and it's this. You can't do this really on your own. You can't, you can't do this isolated. You need the body of Christ. You need the people of God. One of the lies being perpetrated in the church, and I know I'm going after the church pretty hard today at times, but one of the lies that's crept in from the culture to our church is that you are all you need. It's really especially in women's literature that I read. I could name authors, but it, it, I understand what they're trying to say. They're trying to say, hey, Women, you've been beat up too long. You, you, you've accepted these views about yourself that are unacceptable. You are, you're, you're, you're a wonder. You're a wonder. You're beautiful. You're special. You're this. You're that. You're, and it gets to a point, yes, all of those things are true, but it comes to a point where it says, you know, you're all you need. 
And I want to say, every time I read that, I'm like, no, that's not true. You are not all you need. The source for your freedom cannot be found in you alone. It can't. And Cindy prayed against condemnation. Think of the condemnation on people who think that they are all they need and then can't get out of it and then are like, well, I'm all I need. I I just got to do more. No, you've got just uh, Elijah was a man just like us. Right, according to James. And yet he prayed and God moved. How much more can we do the same? But here's the point. Elijah needed things. He needed people. He needed to get away from the... He needed a successor. He needed a school of the prophets. He needed people to walk through with him in order to see what God could do. Only by the power and presence of God are you going to get the emotional freedom that you need. You can't make it happen for yourself. But you can get on this path where God can now touch you. And he can move in your life through the people of God and the presence of God and the power of God to set you free. In a moment, we're going to sing a song where we're going to talk about Lord having our heart and changing our heart. And and, and I want you to just seek God during that time. To pray that God would move in your heart and your life. Bondages would be broken. Emotional freedom would occur. So you can break these habits and throw off the old clothes and put on the new garments that God has for you. We're going to do that in just a minute. Gabriel's going to come and we're going to take up an offering while we do this, while we sing, and then I'm going to offer a ministry time for people who want prayer after we dismiss. So get your offerings ready. It'll be great. It'll be a wonderful, wonderful time. Hey, we have a flower here for, whenever you see a flower up here, you know what that means? We have a new baby. Well, the barbers have a new grandchild. Remind me of his name again. Simon Levi. We're born to Olivia and Michael. And um, so we celebrate with them. Welcome welcome to Gramps. Welcome. Welcome. We're happy for you. Gabriel, come and share opportunities for service for the days ahead.